The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is the History of the World podcast, unscripted. Hello Hot Worlders, welcome to the History of the World podcast with me Chris Hasler and today we're going to have an unscripted special. At the moment we're writing um, episodes for, uh, for members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati who have qualified for that pleasure and uh, the, the next one on the, on the menu is the evolution of religion. Now you can, as you can imagine that's quite an, an extensive episode so that I'm sure will be uh, publishing for you next week but for this week we're going to do um, an unscripted retrospective special though it was quite popular when we did this last time and uh, what basically we want to do is have a look at what was going on for the History of the World podcast on this very day in the previous years of its existence. Now, we're just we're just over a month away from the podcast's fifth birthday, so we can dip back onto the previous four years and find out what we were talking about. So we start one year ago. What were we talking about one year ago? Well, uh, this was the occasion of um, an episode within Volume 4, so within the volume that we're currently covering. And it was on the Icelandic um, poet, um, historian, um, author called Snorri Stotlason. And Snorri Stotlason was alive um, when... Iceland was reaching its final years of independence and he was actually quite heavily involved in the politics of Iceland as well. He was quite a wealthy man and he was invited to be uh, the law speaker of the high court in Iceland. As such, he became very friendly with King Håkon IV of Norway and he went to Norway where he uh, worked um, on writing on 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 the history of Norway uh, at the at the request of King Hawkon and, um, and then eventually he convinced Hawkon to let him uh, go back home where he could assume political duties in Iceland again but um, the situation in Iceland had become very volatile and not least of all for Snorri himself as we find out now One of the notable opponents of Snorri was his own brother, Sigvatr, and he was now being ably assisted by his own son, Stula Sigvatsson. Snorri was suitably concerned by the threat of his brother and nephew that he would prepare for military conflict, which we realised to be a last resort in the lands of Iceland. 
This may have only been posturing from Snorri's perspective, possibly believing that with King Haakon of Norway on his side that anybody would be foolish to take him on. It may be the case that Sigvatr took the threat seriously though and amassed his own force of hundreds to counterbalance Snorri's army and it was enough to call Snorri's bluff as Snorri decided not to go through with the conflict. Sigvatr sensed that this was a sign of his younger brother's unwillingness to fight and that the opportunity existed to attack his brother. The spineless Snorri Sturluson who fled into refuge elsewhere in Iceland. This conflict would be part of a greater struggle for Iceland. The most prominent Icelandic chieftains would have to decide whether they were for the Norwegian Union with King Haakon or against it. As other chieftains decided to pledge loyalty to King Haakon, it wouldn't be too surprising to consider that Haakon may have seen his personal relationship with Snorri as an increasingly expendable one. So Snorri's lack of desire to engage in military battles was now playing against him because other Icelandic chieftains were willing to fight for what they believed in. It was certainly not unusual for Icelandic warriors to pledge themselves to fight on Norwegian soil during their own civil war for a share of the spoils. So even though we believe that military exchanges within Iceland itself could be damaging for all parties, it wasn't as if Icelanders were battle shy. Opportunities for great wealth for Icelanders was limited and so the attraction of an alliance with King Haakon may have been difficult to resist for those who were setting their sights higher than their current lot. Couple this with the fact that your rivals were making the switch and the possibility of being left behind would have been too much to prevent any hesitance. It would actually be a son of Snorri, who is known to us as Orreika Snorrison, who would lead an army in defence of his father and against the forces of his uncle Sigvatr and his cousin Sturla. So Snorri was safer now, but Iceland was in turmoil. Despite Snorri's best attempts to re-establish himself as the most powerful man in Iceland, he would successfully be exiled to Norway by his brother and nephew, who would now have to battle against other powerful families in Iceland, such as the Hukdair family clan, headed by the notable Gissur Thorvaldsson, himself a great-grandson of Jon Loftsson. So it was now Gissur who was posing a threat to Sigvatr, while Snorri was in exile in Norway with King Haakon. Snorri's relationship with Haakon on this occasion was full of distrust now that Snorri's value to Haakon was diminished. In the meantime, back in Iceland, Snorri's brother Sigvatr and his son Sturla were on a collision course with his rival Gissur Thorvaldsson. Gissur had amassed a large force to counterbalance the forces of Sigvatr and he did this by striking up an anti-Stulung alliance with a man called Holben Ungi Arnorsson of the Ausbjörninga family clan. The two armies would meet on the 21st of August 1238 at the Battle of Ulligstathr. 
The outcome was a victory for the alliance, who defeated the Stulunga, also killing both Sigvath Sturluson and his son Sturla Sigvatson. It was after this battle that Snorri would approach King Hawkon and request that he be allowed to return to Iceland, but King Hawkon, who himself was growing ever distrustful of everyone around him due to the continuing civil war in Norway, denied Snorri passage to Iceland, fearing that he may be about to rally Icelanders against King Hawkon, and instead, for his political opponent and father-in-law, Duke Skuli Borsson. Snorri would famously declare the legendary phrase Utvilek, which essentially means I want to go. Despite Hawkon denying Snorri passage, Skule would arrange it against Hawkon's orders. Snorri would return to Iceland and would find himself politically opposed to his former ally, King Hawkon. It would appear that it would be at this time that King Hawkon approached the victor at the Battle of Ulrikstathe, Gissa Thorvaldsson, and they struck up an alliance. Hawkon felt that Gissa was the right man to get behind in his quest to bring Iceland under his influence, and he now saw Snorri Sturluson as a threat to that aim. King Hawkon was able to defeat and kill his father-in-law, Duke Skuller, which was yet another blow for Snorri, who was now a primary target for King Hawkon, who is believed to have sent an instruction to Gissur to either kidnap or kill Snorri. Subsequently, Gissur took a force of men to Snorri's home in Reykholt, in 1241 with intentions to capture him. Snorri would not surrender himself to Gissur, which forced Gissur to issue the command to strike Snorri down. After Snorri cried out the words, Ey skal hukta, a direct protest against being struck down, he would be struck and killed, bringing an end to the life of Snorri Sturluson at the age of 62. Well, that was a discussion on Snorri Sturluson, who's very much um, a big part of all the Norse mythology, uh, all, the, all of those writings, all of those um, epic sagas. Um, Snorri Sturluson was a very fundamental part of, of that writing. And uh, we often remember him for that rather than his political influence in Iceland. Um, but... That was uh, Snorri Stotlison and an episode that was requested by a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, which is what we do. If you if you amass the right amount of uh, donation to the podcast, we write special episodes for you. Anyway, moving on, that was what we were talking about one year ago. Two years ago, we were talking about the Battle of Red Cliffs and... This is a different part of the world altogether. We seem to spend a lot of our time in Europe and and uh, and Western Asia. Uh, it seems like it's a rarity when we talk about other parts of the world. Uh, but uh, two years ago, yes, we were talking about China. 
and we were talking about it during the classical age so this was after the Han dynasty was was on the brink of collapse and uh, warlords uh, independent warlords were gathering lands for themselves and one very powerful man was called Cao Cao and he was uh, from the north he was from the north of Han dynasty lands and his aim was to conquer the southern lands and uh, especially those controlled by Liu Bei and Sun Chun. So let's pick up the story of the build-up to the final battle, this Battle of Red Cliffs, and, uh, and find out what the outcome was. Cao Cao, now securing the lands of North China and the northern frontier, had now managed to gain an absolute authority over the imperial government, despite the fact that Emperor Tsien was now in his 20s. He was simply a symbolic emperor for Han China, with no freedom to rule. Cao Cao was named as the Chancellor of Han China before turning his focus south to the Yangtze River and beyond. He already knew that he would have to tackle Sun Chun when he did cross the river. We mentioned that Liu Bei had fled southwards from Cao Cao's side of the river to the Jing province. Jing province was being governed by a man called Liu Biao, who had a natural territorial enemy in the young and ambitious Sun Qian. Liu Biao died of an illness just as Xiao Xiao was carrying out his southward invasion, and Liu Bei fled with the son of Liu Biao, whose name was Liu Qi. Cao Cao captured a large number of the Jing naval fleet and a large number of the populace that had not escaped alongside Liu Bei. Liu Bei had to consider his options, but he would choose to head to the lands of Sun Quan to secure an alliance against the ever-growing power of Xiao Xiao. Xiao Xiao had already sent envoys to Sun Quan to give him the message that he had absolutely no chance of success in opposing him and that he should surrender. Sun Quan might have believed this was to be his only option, but for the emergence of Liu Bei and the prospect of a southern alliance. We can't be sure of the total numbers that sized up against each other for the fateful battle, but the southern alliance was measured in tens of thousands against Xiao Xiao's forces of hundreds of thousands. The Battle of Red Cliffs Cao Cao would sail his war fleet full of soldiers from the captured port of Jiangling eastwards along the Yangtze River to meet with the combined forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan approaching from the opposite direction from the port of Chaisang. The two fleets would meet halfway and the forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan would be more than a match for Cao Cao's larger force, and Cao Cao was forced to dock on the northern banks and stall for time while his army recuperated and prepared for another attack. It was at this point that Cao Cao, despite not being able to gain an advantage, was clearly superior in numbers and had every reason to feel confident about ultimate victory. Sun Quan would approve plans to officially surrender to Xiao Xiao and after relaying the message to him, Sun Quan 
prepared a contingent of the most important ships to sail to the north bank of the Yangtze River to discuss the terms. Cao Cao must have been overjoyed to have believed that he had conquered Sun Quan with little in the way of damage and a naval fleet in his possession. If this seemed all too easy, then the reality of the move soon became apparent. The contingent of diplomatic ships sent to Cao Cao were ghost ships and soon turned into fire ships, set ablaze and sailing in the direction of the anchored fleet of Cao Cao. Cao Cao was helpless to stop these fire ships from colliding with his own acquired fleet, spreading the fires to them and destroying many ships containing many troops and many resources. This was a sudden and disastrous turn of events for Cao Cao, as he had been outwitted and tricked. Cao Cao's forces were sent into a panic and this is where Liu Bei and Sun Quan attempted to capitalise by sailing over the Yangtze to engage in battle. This was their golden opportunity to resist Cao Cao and Cao Cao realised that he was now on the back foot with his command in disarray. Cao Cao destroyed what was left of his naval fleet before it would fall into enemy hands and retreated northwards on foot. However, the lands north of this point of the Yangtze River were waterlogged and marshy and escape at any speed and in any form of order was impossible. Many more of Cao Cao's soldiers simply couldn't make it north to safety. They were pursued by the Allied forces, to their detriment however, not realising that they themselves would also be trapped in the marshlands. Their work had been done though and Cao Cao had to retreat north to regroup despite entering the conflict with superior numbers. So as fearless as Cao Cao was, he couldn't get the job done and uh, China ended up spiralling into this um, this really disorganised mess for, for a couple of centuries afterwards. And uh, gone was the classical Han dynasty, which, uh, which was a, a very much a, a stabilising influence over classical China for, um, for many centuries. Anyway, moving on, that was what we were talking about two years ago. If we go back another year, we were still in the classical world, but we were discussing what happened in the aftermath of the lifetime of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, um, we should all know by now, the Macedonian king who managed to conquer vast amounts of territory. Um, right across uh, the Iranian plateau, the Middle East and, and onto the Indus Valley and um, certainly touching on the, the Indian cultures. But he also, en route, he managed to secure Egypt. Now, three years ago, we were discussing what happened after uh, Alexander the Great's untimely death. And his vast empire was split up between a number of successors called Diadochi, uh, which being the Greek name for successors, or, or something like that anyway. But they were called the Diadochi, and one such uh, man was Ptolemy. And it's from Ptolemy that we get the period 
of Ptolemaic Egypt, which is uh, so deeply spoken about, especially when looking at the end of Ptolemaic Egyptian uh, timelines uh, with Queen Cleopatra, of course, who uh, ultimately uh, had to surrender her kingdom to the Romans. But how was it called Ptolemaic Egypt? Who was this man Ptolemy? We were discussing this three years ago. Macedonian kings such as Philip II and Alexander III had an entourage of bodyguards called Somatophylakes. One of Alexander's Somatophylakes was a man called Ptolemy and he played an important role in Alexander the Great's Persian campaigns. There were many other important military generals and statesmen that had accompanied Alexander the Great before his death and they were all keen to see whether they could benefit in the aftermath of their king's death. It was decided at a conference called the Partition of Babylon that the main military officers should become the new satraps of the Macedonian Persian Empire and Ptolemy was rewarded with the satrapy of Egypt. Ptolemy appears to have embraced his new role and declared himself Pharaoh Ptolemy I Sota and this was a key reason why Alexander the Great's body ended up in a tomb in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. One of Alexander the Great's generals was a man called Perdiccas, born of a noble family of Macedonia. Perdiccas would emerge from the partition of Babylon as the regent to the mentally challenged Philip III and the newborn Alexander IV. Perdiccas may have felt like he needed to be quite heavy-handed and strong-willed to effectively fill the shoes of Alexander the Great, and the other generals such as Ptolemy and Antipater would probably be questioning Perdiccas's credentials against their own. One Macedonian tradition was that the new king of Macedon should be the one to bury the deceased and outgoing king, and Ptolemy was very quick to prevent Perdiccas from this honour, and this is why Alexander the Great was entombed in Alexandria. Ptolemy prevented Perdiccas from taking the remains back to Macedon by capturing them and taking them to Egypt. Perdiccas would interpret this as a direct challenge against his position and would believe that Ptolemy, with the valuable satrapy of Egypt, could endeavour to depose Perdiccas, so Perdiccas would befriend Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, and become betrothed to marry Alexander's sister, Cleopatra, whose previous wedding was the one we spoke of in episode 17, which was the occasion of the death of Alexander the Great's father, King Philip II of Macedon. This may well have upset Antipater, whose own daughter had been betrothed to Perdiccas. Antipater also recognised the danger of Perdiccas's assertions, especially as he had worked hard to maintain and protect the homelands of the Macedonian Empire. However, 
By this time, Antipater was a very old man of nearly 80 years old. So it would have been unlikely for him to want to actively oppose Perdiccas on the battlefield. Of course, as important as Ptolemaic Egypt was, it's uh, it's sort of it's overshadowed by ancient Egypt and uh, everything that went on in those uh, in those many many centuries of of Egyptian glory. And um, four years ago on the History of the World podcast, we were talking about Egypt um, from a very much that period and certainly the new kingdom which um, gives us so many of these great tombs uh, which we associate that are more modern than pyramids for example and um, what during the episode that we were um, that we were presenting on the new kingdom we encountered the very radical pharaoh called Akhenaten um, who we suspect was his wife Nefertiti and who we suspect was his son, Tutankhamun. So let's go back and listen. So Egypt would be at its most powerful extent for some time after Thutmose III's lifetime, and right up into the 14th century BCE. Various pharaohs ruled Egypt and maintained its great extent. Thutmose III's bloodline would continue the dynasty until his great-grandson Amenhotep III became the pharaoh in the early 14th century BCE. This was a great cultural period of the new kingdom. Amenhotep III would have a son who would succeed him as the pharaoh of Egypt and he would come to reign as Amenhotep IV. Amenhotep IV is an incredibly unique and important individual when it comes to discussing the course of events of the New Kingdom. Now, traditionally, the Theban dynasties of the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom regarded Amun as the prime deity of the city of Thebes in favour of Montu. When the New Kingdom emerged out of Thebes, Amun's status as an important deity became a national thing. However, at some point during Amenhotep IV's reign, he decided that things needed to change. He and his wife, Nefertiti, the heads of Egypt at a time of great wealth and power, decided to alter the religious position of the country. Amenhotep IV is believed to have despised the power that the Church of Amun had in Egypt, and he outlawed the worship of Amun and any other deity other than his own chosen deity, Aten, the sun disc. This was utterly radical. Not only did Amenhotep IV introduce Atenism as the kingdom's religion, but due to his outlawing of other worship, Artanism changed Egypt from polytheistic to monotheistic, something that apparently happened to the Jewish people many hundreds of years later in respect of their deity Yahweh. 
Amenhotep IV changed his own name to Akhenaten, which translates to effective for Aten. And he would move Egypt's capital city to Amarna, a city that he designed and built for the worship of Aten. Excavations from Amarna, which exists as an archaeological site in the Minya governorate of modern Egypt, suggest that Akhenaten did not wake up one morning and completely overhaul the entire religious attitude of Egypt. Due to the fact that many artefacts relating to Egypt's other deities have been discovered there from this period, it suggests that Akhenaten probably tried to gradually impose his will over the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt were really not ready to break away from hundreds of years of religious tradition and belief and this only served to strain the relationship between the people and their pharaoh. Akhenaten would have a son who would also receive a name relating to the sun disk deity Aten. His name was Tutankhaten, which translates as the living image of Aten. After Akhenaten's lifetime, the Amarna period which represented his will to change the religion of Egypt came to an end. Akhenaten would come to be regarded as a heretic, even by his own son Tutankhaten, who would allow the religion of Egypt to return to its original condition and subsequently change his own name to honour the Theban god Amun, and therefore he would come to be known as Tutankhamun. As we previously discussed previously when talking of sister wives in Egypt, it may be the case that Tutankhamun was the product of a sexual relationship between his father Akhenaten and Akhenaten's own sister. This is strongly suggested by DNA tests of mummified remains. Worse still is the fact that Tutankhamun's wife was actually his half-sister Ankhesenamun, daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Tutankhamun and his half-sister would attempt to procreate. Now, modern science tells us that incestuous relationships do not produce the healthiest offspring, and we have the suggestion of incestuousness going on in the Egyptian royal family in absolute abundance, possibly believing that royal blood was in some way divine and this practice was wholly correct. Tutankhamun was the father of two stillborn daughters. Tutankhamun himself suffered from cleft palate, scoliosis, bone fusion of the neck and a deformity of the foot caused by defective bone tissue. Could all of this have been the result of too much inbreeding? We also know that Tutankhamun was bitten by mosquitoes and probably caused him to contract malaria and we know this thanks to the DNA studies of his mummified body. This is reported to be the earliest known proven case of a human contracting malaria. Nonetheless, it does appear that Tutankhamun, no more than a teenager when he died, was held in great esteem by his people who deified him during his lifetime, possibly due to the fact that he restored the Egyptian ability to worship Amun and the pantheon of deities that were traditional to the Egyptians. His tomb in the Valley of the Kings 
was almost completely intact when it was discovered in 1922. Over 5,000 artefacts were found buried alongside the young pharaoh. One of the most iconic and recognisable artefacts of ancient Egyptian culture is the golden death mask of Tutankhamun recovered from his tomb. The golden mask was carefully created with the addition of lapis lazuli, quartz, obsidian, carnelian, turquoise, faience and other precious and semi-precious stones. This demonstrates a richness in the trade network at the very least. The mask and the pharaoh himself are highly iconic of ancient Egypt. Magazines and books on the general subject of ancient Egypt frequently feature the image of the death mask among their cover art. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, uh, a retrospective look at some of the some of the subject matter that we were talking about on this day uh, in previous years that this podcast has been uh, active. Um, we received a message this week um, from uh, Vibeki Moore, and if you remember, Vibeki was the History of the World podcast Illuminati member who requested the uh, the podcast episode on the subject of the Yamnaya culture that we discussed last week. And she wrote in and said, Hi Chris, thank you ever so much for the episode on the Yamnaya. It was both intriguing and inspiring, solid and respectful towards lacking facts and the many hypotheses. I like your openness and honesty very much. Your podcast on history is really the very best and I have tried many. All the best from your loyal follower from Norway, Vibeki Moore. Well, Vibeki, it's thanks to people like you that I'm able to invest into this project and make it even better than I would otherwise if I was just, um, you know, if I was just doing it all off my own back. So thank you, Vibeki. You weren't that right. And I'm I'm thankful that you wrote in and uh, expressed your pleasure about the episode. You can go so much deeper into Yamnaya culture, and there are publications. I think I discussed this last week on the um, on the subscribers episode that you can dig so much deeper into Yamnaya facts and and aspects by sort of you know getting books on the subject. And uh, there are a number of uh, papers that have been. Um, that have been published from the various educational establishments, and so so you can you can dig a bit deeper. Obviously, my podcasts are only ever a general overview, so um, there's plenty out there if you if you're interested in finding out more. Uh, Brandy Borber has written in and has said, "Hi, Chris. My name is Brandy, and I'm from Fresno, California." Like you, I did not study history, but I've always had a passion for it. I have been on a quest to find something that presented history cohesively when I found your podcast. While I enjoy the depth of media that studies specific civilizations or regions, I find it hard to consolidate the information with that of other civilizations and regions. 
It is incredibly helpful that you present what is happening in all parts of the world at the same time, specifically during your summary episodes. Despite having a broader subject matter than most other podcasts, you take the time to provide detailed stories that really give listeners a glimpse into life during that time period. It is clear that you put a lot of time and effort into producing this show and it is greatly appreciated. I was sceptical at first when I saw that the show started in prehistory as that has never been a particularly interesting era to me but was pleasantly surprised by the content you presented. You not only provided fascinating information but also made information that I otherwise would have found boring uh, enjoyable to learn. One of the things I especially liked about Volume 1 was the discussion about how scientists have been able to make these discoveries and like you mentioned in an an unscripted episode presenting the history of discovering the history. Will this be something you continue with throughout the series? I loved hearing about how the context of when discoveries are made impacts the interpretation of these discoveries. I hope this is something you can bring back as you get into more modern history, providing the same stories of discovery from the other side and how they impacted the contemporary world. I just finished Volume 1 and I'm looking forward to Volume 2 as ancient history is one of my favourites. I'm very excited to learn more about Mesopotamia, objectively the coolest civilization. I do have a request if you have time. In addition to the maps you make, would you be able to provide images or diagrams of things discussed in the episodes? I find it I, I found it somewhat difficult to follow your episode on Stonehenge just because I did not know a lot of the terminology and therefore had a hard time understanding the details you were describing. It would be really cool to see pictures of the artifacts you have mentioned, such as an example of cuneiform or an example of prehistoric pottery. This is uh, such a great podcast. It makes me so happy to see how uh, many episodes I have yet to listen to. I admire your dedication to this project and your ability to produce a wonderful resource for all of us nerds. Thanks again, Brandy. Well, uh, thank you, Brandy. Such a good message. And um, yeah, you touched upon a few things, which really um, I do. I do find it time to sort of devote my personal time to such a lot of uh, such a lot of the podcasts. You see this when I'm having to do these unscripted episodes. It's really because I've I've run short of time, and of course, juggling uh, this podcast with uh, my personal life and you know commitments to my family. It's it's all very difficult to be able to keep up with it. But thankfully, thanks to the people who support the podcast, I'm able to do it. So um, and and certainly things like um, enhancing the indexing of the podcasts and the, and the material that um, relates to the episodes or the information within the episodes would be something I would love to devote more time to. So hopefully sometime in the future maybe that is something that I'll be able to do but thanks for your message Brandy um anyway that's it for this week uh next week uh hopefully we'll be bringing you the evolution of religion what a what a, a challenging episode that will be but uh it will be incredibly interesting nonetheless um but until then thanks for listening and uh don't forget to listen if you are a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, to the subscribers only episode, so um, that will you'll be able to find either on Patreon or on uh, Spotify. Uh, but until then, thanks for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. 
please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.